are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. All right, welcome. We are starting our third episode on opiate use disorders. This is the maintenance phase and monitoring. We're going to talk about basic policies and procedures, implementing the maintenance phase, what you do to evaluate patients on the follow-up visits, difficult behaviors, reducing diversion, co-occurring substance abuse. All right, Paula, kind of just tell me some of your office procedures and policies, what you do. What we do for patients once they are in the maintenance phase, as opposed to induction, is we like to see them back really frequently. So typically all of our patients return at least every seven days to see the provider, get their prescription, have a urine drug screen, and we review their controlled substance database report. Sometimes we even see people back sooner than every seven days if we're really worried about them or if we have another reason to do more rapid follow-up. But typically, we do short prescriptions every seven days with regular follow-up. Occasionally, this might be in the setting of a group visit, but more often it's one-on-one. We like to do urine drug screens pretty much every visit. Uh, I think random drug screens eventually can be more valuable, but initially urine drug screens just give you information on progress for the patient, much like a hemoglobin A1C gives you progress on a diabetic patient or home blood pressure monitoring does for a hypertensive patient. And of course, reviewing the prescription monitoring database is helpful because you can see that when patients are picking up their prescription and if they're picking up any prescriptions from other providers. And then, of course, the visit itself is helpful, helps you touch base with folks, opens the door for all kinds of conversations that are hopefully based in a non-shaming, non-judgmental, open way, and not only addresses people's substance use disorder or opiate use, but also reviews other aspects of their physical and mental health that may need addressing, such as treatment of hepatitis C, addressing any psychiatric comorbidities or any other primary care issues that that commonly arise with this population. What about you? Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. As patients stabilize and gradually spreading out those visits, you know, up to 30 days at a time in between visits as they're stable. And I think it's so important, like you talk about with those physical exam, it can be so important that gives you a lot of clue on how the patient's doing. I think you brought this up before, Paula, just how the patients look, what, you know, what their affect is that, you know, their physical appearance, their hygiene, their pupils can really tell you a lot on how the patient's doing in general. And then just having just set kind of policies and procedures that you do in your office helps just keep that up. I find that this is probably one of our most common questions that we get and where some offices are struggling, especially if they have multiple providers that provide, you know, treatment for opiate use disorder is setting up. And I found this just having procedure manual of this is how we do a drug screen medication counts and having just set procedures of 
you know, this is our intake evaluation and this is how, and these written protocols and have that culture set in your clinic is easier for you. The patients know the expectations, the staff know the expectations, and then kind of decreases a lot of the stress and confusion that kind of comes in. One thing that comes up frequently. Right, I, I agree. Yeah, one thing that comes up frequently is always this concern about diversion. And I think that's where if you have those policies and procedures in place, number and your and your clinic is known that you do these that reduces your risk of diversion in the first place. Just doing those regular drug screens and medication counts reduces that risk shorter prescriptions in the beginning. And then if you suspect that this patient is maybe diverting, you can always go back to more frequent follow-up. So those those are just things to always be thinking about because that's a common concern that we we get is, well, I, you know, I think these patients aren't taking their medications appropriately, or I think they're selling their medications. I'm like, then follow up on it, do something about it, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think if it's just standard for everybody, then you don't have to figure out what to do when you have a patient that you may be worried about diversion, because if it's just part of your clinic policy and protocol, then that's just what you always do. Uh, you're not then trying to go outside of the bounds for a patient who may be uh, more behaviorally challenging. And I think that sets you up and protects you legally as well when you have those kinds of policies in place. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great point. I I really like this having just the family input. And I wish I could give credit, but year, several years ago, this was actually a pain specialist was giving a talk on contacting a family member and getting their input. And I just, so I set that up in my practice and it works great. You do have to have a release. So the patient has to sign, you know, a consent form and I let them choose who they want to be on that release. They, you know, they, they pick a person and I just ask four questions. How is this person doing in treatment? Are they taking their medications as prescribed? Are they diverting, selling their medications? Are they compliant with counseling or therapies? Is there anything else we need to know? And just having a regular follow-up with like every three to four months or depending on staff availability, how often they can call and just make those phone calls for that. That can really give you some insight into how your patient is doing. Exactly. I think that's a great, that's a great um, approach. And one thing I was going to add about urine drug screening, I often have uh providers or practices ask if we do observed urine drug screen um, tests at our clinic. And in our clinic, which is a primary care slash addiction medicine clinic, we do both in an integrated fashion. We don't do observed urines. Uh, we just don't choose to do that. I know that at methadone clinics or some um, facilities where you're doing drug testing, maybe for the court system, they, do, they will do observed um, collection, but we don't. And I think one of the reasons why we don't is there is no, there, we don't penalize people for having a positive urine. And so they don't feel the need to adulterate their urine. Um, I'm hoping that's what how our patients feel, that if they have a positive urine for opiates or any other substance, we can just talk about it as part of their treatment as opposed to using it as um, evidence to fire them or discharge them. 
but uh, we don't use observed urine drug screens. I think it's perfectly reasonable to do so if you feel like that's something you want to do, but uh, we d- we just don't choose to do that. No, I think that's an excellent point that a urine drug screen is just another tool that we use, but it's not a decision. I think that's important that that's something that we use to just decide that we maybe we need a change in this patient's treatment plan, but this isn't a decision that this person, you know, you have to look at it as every, any other test that we order in medicine, correct? Just because a patient comes back with an elevated A1C, why would you discontinue treatment? But we frequently do that in addiction medicine and it doesn't make sense. I'll be honest, Paula, when we first started in our training, that was really the standard, right? And that's a hard, and that was something I really right. had to unlearn and, and learn that I, ha- I had to ask myself, why are we doing this and change that behavior? So, so it is something you have to ask yourself, why am I doing this year next screen and what information I want to gather from it? But it just tells me, okay, this person maybe is not as stable as they thought they were. And so we need to talk about, do they need to be in therapy? Are they not going to therapy when we thought they were? And maybe I need to have a conversation with their counselor and we need to talk about what is their support, what stressors are going on and how can we, do we need to do some motivational interviewing or some coping strategies and figure out what else we need to do here. Often what it really means is this person is going through a stressor and they need more frequent follow-up. That's a frequent answer, which is often the same thing that we do with other diseases. You see the patient more often when they're having a flare of their disease, not less, and you certainly don't fire them. And and so it's recognizing Exactly. So that's really common. Exactly, exactly. Right. And I think it's very frustrating and very typical when we have a patient who has addiction or substance use disorder, it's just really common to feel hot under the collar, to get frustrated, to to talk about it with your peers about this person who is failing treatment or who doesn't seem to be as motivated as you want them to be. Because it's just, it seems so apparent to those of us who are looking in from the outside as to why they should stop using their substance or substances. That makes no sense to us. But then again, you know, substance use and addiction is such a complex system that involves multiple neurochemical, neuroanatomical pathways, along with very, very complicated psychosocial um, interplays that it just doesn't make, it just frustrates us as providers, right? And then, of course, you bring in moral issues to it. Uh, and moral decision making, like people neglecting their job or losing their housing, or uh, maybe ha- having children in the house while they're using drugs, it makes us even more frustrated because we just can't understand why people would choose to do things like that. It just it just comes back to monitoring the disease process, like you were saying, using these tools for monitoring to make sure that one, as the prescriber, you're doing the right thing because. If you're using buprenorphine, it is a controlled substance. And so you want to be responsible and exercise stewardship over that medication. You can't just, we should not be just going around prescribing high doses above that which is recommended for with very long prescriptions to people who otherwise may not be able to manage that medication. Just intrinsically, there's incentive to divert or misuse 
And it's not because those people are bad people. It's just almost like you're setting them up. And secondly, we have to use these chronic disease management tools, just like we do for other diseases, so that we can monitor and adjust treatment accordingly if people are not are not doing well. Uh, and so it just means, like you said, do we see them more often? Do we do behavioral therapies? Do we refer them to a higher level of care? All of these things. And, and that's that's what we're doing here. It's one, setting up ourselves as good prescribers, and two, we're setting up our patients to be cared for in the best, most evidence-based um, environment for their success. Oh, absolutely agree completely. One thing is, what does a typical follow-up visit look like? So this is a person who now you've got them, you've finished the, the induction phase, and now they're stable. How I kind of teach this to my students and residents, I always will ask patients what we talked about a little bit before is what does their general effect mood look like? And I always ask them any depression symptoms, any anxiety symptoms. Taught this by one of my mentors is you don't want to just say, if they say, oh no, I'm not depressed or anxious. He's like, you need to ask a couple more questions because it's a natural thing in our culture. They're going to come in and say, oh, I'm fine. Always ask about sleep. How's your sleep? Are you sleeping? Are you not sleeping? How's your appetite? And how's your energy level? That tells you a lot. It tells you about their how, how they're functioning. And it also tells you about side effects from the medication too, because they might be, they're always going to tell you, I'm doing great on my med. You may pick up on more subtle things. So you need to definitely ask those. So if their appetites decreased, that sets us off that, Hey, something's not right. Sometimes with their mood, you need to ask why. And if energy levels going down again, that can be a multitude of things, stress, that can be anxiety, that can be side effect of medication. So that's very important. So asking those things. And then typical things I always ask about is med adherence. Are you taking your medication as prescribed? If it, you know, are you taking it once a day? When are you taking it? It's that's a very interesting thing on how the medic how the patient views their medication. And so if I have patients who can't get out of bed in the morning, they take their medication before they even get out of bed in the morning, then that is a little bit of a signal that are they developing an unhealthy relationship with their medication might need to be addressed. If this person is breaking up their medication and taking it several times throughout the day, that's starting to mimic some abuse. Where you, and so we need to address that behavior. So med adherence is really important. Obviously, we ask about any relapses. And then you know, we always briefly touch on goals. What goals have they set for themselves and are they achieving? Are they compliant with their counseling or therapies groups? And how is that going? I obviously ask about work, family life. How are they doing there? And that, that always seems like that's a lot of information, but you can really touch on those things very quickly and briefly get through them. And the patients just want to talk. They want to tell me about their successes, right? We want to talk about successes failures, what they feel like they want to do better on and what we can do. And then we go from our plan from there. Paula, what's kind of your, what do your follow-up visits look like? I'd say they're very similar. I uh, use open-ended questions to ask yes. them how their treatment's going and uh, ask them how they're feeling on their dose, if they feel like it's adequate to control any cravings or urges to use, if they feel 
I ask them about specific side effects. So I ask them if they have any sedation, nausea, headaches, constipation, yes. or anything else that they're worried about. Um, I ask them specifically mood questions, like you said. I ask them about if they're having any other physical problems, any new physical or, or mental um, symptoms, kind of review of symptoms like you discussed, Arlene. And I always try and remember to specifically ask about suicide just because patients who have substance use disorder do have a much higher risk of suicide. And then like you, I like to check in with them in their life because this gives you an idea of their functioning. And uh, also it's just amazing to see how people progress and, and begin to reclaim things in their life as they as they move further and further away from their addiction. And that's just so rewarding. And and I often find these visits, these um, buprenorphine uh, follow-up visits, or they could be naltrexone follow-up visits for opioid use disorder are often the most rewarding visits because once patients settle in and become stable, they become quite, I wouldn't say simple visits, but they become quite easy visits in terms of checking in with the patient, seeing how they're doing, and they can be very rewarding. Not always, of course, people have ups and downs, but I really look forward to those visits. And then I agree with you, I like to touch on goals. What's the goal of treatment? Where are we heading if we need to make any changes? And then also just touch on life goals so that we can continue to use life goals as a lever for motivational enhancement and motivational interviewing for behavior change. If there's continued marijuana use or tobacco use or any other behavior that they think they're pre-contemplative or contemplative about uh, so we can continue to work towards healthy lifestyle. Because uh, it's not just about the substance that they initially presented with. It's about obviously enabling them in total wellness. Yes, you bring up yeah. excellent points. So on that, Paula, what do you do? Because this is, this is another hot topic with patients with co-occurring substance use disorders who continue to use, you know, meth, marijuana, and, and nicotine. That's common. And we've talked about this in other episodes. What do you do? And that was kind of, again, the old days. It was, if they're not abstinent, people didn't want to treat them immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do we do? Yeah. This is a tough one. It is. It's tough. And I think it depends on the circumstance. It depends on the patient. It depends on the substance. It depends on their treatment goals. And it depends on the relative risk. You know, yes. um, so I think there's a hundred different scenarios or more, thousand different scenarios with this. But I mean, like all of us in primary care or specialty care, nicotine use is an ongoing battle that hopefully we all pay attention to every visit. And uh, other substances, you know, obviously cannabis has become this interesting subject, an interesting drug that's gained more uh, acceptance and reduced perception of harm. And so it can be kind of like a point where people will come into great resistance with you. When you start talking about their cannabis use, they go into resistance and they throw up all these reasons why they need to continue using. And I find that I, I, I try and choose my timing carefully about when to push or when to talk about it and when to encourage people to stop using. I mean, every visit I try and address it and just say, how's it going? You know, how's it working out for you? Try and ascertain and get a feel of, of how they're doing with their use. And uh, much like you were talking about the dosing and how people take their Suboxone or their buprenorphine, I try and get an idea for what role cannabis plays in their life. Is it something they're using occasionally? Is it something they're using every single night to fall asleep because they're anxious or worried about insomnia? Are they using it all day? I mean, these are all different scenarios, right? 
And so based on their response, then I think we kind of make a plan. I mean, the patient may not make a plan, but I make a plan in my head of, okay, how, what's the best way to work with this patient based on their personality, their innate risks, and their risk of returning to use opiates? Because what I don't want to do is lose them to, to the relationship that I have with them that's enabling them to reduce or stop their opiate use. And that doesn't mean that you let people, or that sounds authoritarian, but that doesn't mean you're permissive of any and all substance use without any regard. But we have to uh, maintain the overall picture that opiates have a high rate of mortality, right? They're, the use of opiates yes. will kill people. Now, we can certainly argue that ongoing use of nicotine will kill people, actually have a higher risk of killing people than opiates does. So that's why we address it every single visit. Uh, how about cannabis? Well, you know, there's lots of reasons why people with substance use disorder should not be using cannabis, right? And it's a yes. hot topic. Some people would argue that maybe it can be helpful, but there's no good evidence to support that. And in fact, we know it, it can increase the risk of vulnerable populations, those with psychiatric illness and those with substance use. And in my mind, that those are all of my people. And so I continually work with them to see if I can motivate them into some kind of change. And I'm amazed when people do Actually, they're amazed when they do stop using their other substances, especially marijuana. I seem to be fixated on that for some reason, that they feel so much better, even though they came initially in so much resistance and saying, I'll never give it up. I, I, it's the only thing that works for me. Uh, eventually, when people do decide to stop using or they get a job and they can't you know, test positive for, for THC, they stop using and they're like, man, I feel so much better. You know, stimulants. That's that's a tough one. I'm in a clinic where we see a lot of stimulant use. And it's tough because it seems to have such a social toll. And yeah. you want people to do better than they are doing. And you know that probably the stim ongoing stimulant use, especially in Utah, we've got high rates of methamphetamine use, are probably preventing people from meeting some social and personal goals. But again, I think it's about engagement, it's about education, and also it might be about escalating care, you know, about saying, okay, what else do we need to do to support you? And I know you'll probably talk about benzodiazepines and alcohol, but in, in our contract, in our clinic, our patients agree not to use alcohol or benzodiazepines. Now, does that mean that we punish them or fire them for having admitting to a single drink. No, of course we don't. If someone shows up with a prescription of alprazolam on their on their prescription monitoring database, we certainly have a conversation about it. And we try and figure out what's going on and we work with them. And I, I have much more opinionated with them when I see this kind of behavior, benzodiazepines in the urine, ETG, ETS positive, benzodiazepines on pre prescription uh, drug monitoring database than I am with other substances because the risk of overdose and death with opioids and these substances is so much higher and I, I don't want to contribute to risk. I want to reduce risk. What about you? Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And I've been the same way. It's been something that, again, I've had to learn this. This was not what I learned a decade ago. It's like you said, we have to reduce risk for our patient. And you've told me this, Paula, that we want the patients to be completely abstinent from the very beginning. Sometimes that's an unreal expectation. And so you have to work with the patients and leverage what you can 
through their experience, but you have to build that relationship first. And and this is common. Again, this goes back to the chronic disease model. In many patients, it takes time and you have to just slowly work through those things, but you have to keep working with them. We have to keep giving them some options. Exactly. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And then other things. So when you do have to refer patients, so sometimes need to go to a higher level of care. I think the most important thing to remember when you have them there in the maintenance phase and they're in that stage, making sure that they know that that you are still caring for them. They will be returning to treatment with you. I think that's a common issue is reminding them that they don't have these fears of abandonment. I was seeing this provider and then I relapsed and then I've been, I, you know, I went to an inpatient treatment for a while and then now, now they come out and, and then there's just these disruptions in treatment. We need to make sure we're doing our best to keep that seamless. Yes, I agree. And um, I worked, you know, as a hospitalist in, on a detox unit, um, for five years. And it was really interesting to see how patients would, we would always ask them, who's your doctor? Who's your provider that supports you? Or do you have anyone that you're going to go back to? And it was interesting to see the response. Those patients who clearly had a really good relationship with, with a provider would say, oh yeah, they're, they're going to be so ha- proud of me. They're going to be so happy that I came in and did this and got, you know, got kind of settled, got off, you know, my the, the Xanax I was taking out of control or stopped drinking or, and there are many patients who say, oh no, I can't, I can't talk to my provider about this. They, they would just shut down or I tried talking to them before and they just didn't listen or I don't want them to know I'm embarrassed or I don't want them to know because I want them to keep prescribing to me. We heard that quite a lot too. Yes. So yeah. And also sometimes patients just didn't know. They're like, well, I don't know if I can go to my provider and continue and get Vivitrol, or I'm not sure if this provider if my my PA or my doc or whatever can can continue me on buprenorphine naloxone. So I think it's really important to let patients know that you're going to be here no matter what stage in their illness they are in and that they can come back and see you no matter where they're at, whether they're doing well, whether they're not doing well, especially if they're not doing well. You know, and I think that kind of messaging is really important and to kind of get out of your own way with your own biases about addiction. And I know that's, that can be really difficult. I think that's difficult with us for a lot of sensitive topics like trauma and abuse or unwanted pregnancies or certain infections or sexuality issues, gender issues, substance use issues. As providers, we have our own ideas and beliefs about all of these things, and that's normal. But we need, it's, it's interesting and important, I think, to mind out of our way and show up for the patient the best way we can so that they feel comfortable coming back. Because the worst thing that can happen to them is for them to just stay home feeling isolated and without care because they're worried about what you think. And it's not about what we think. It's about what they need. I couldn't say it better, Paula. That is absolutely correct. And something that we have to learn over and over again. You know, Paula, you have a really interesting setup in your clinic that I love. What do you do? So first, kind of with these really difficult behavior patients, that's another one that I think a lot of physicians and practices shy away initially from treating addiction patients or have told me they have stopped from treating patients because they've ran into sometimes these kind of difficult behavior patients. And 
So how do you manage them? And then kind of tell me what you guys do that is amazing, really. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I wish <laughs> I wish we had the solution, right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> then we'd have, then we'd, you know, I don't know, I'd write a book or something. But um, well, the first thing I think to acknowledge is that some patients who have, you know, substance use disorder diagnosis, they can be behaviorally challenging. I mean, we all just have to admit that they can be very difficult, especially when they are in active disease and, and they're active in their addiction. They can be manipulative and behaviorally impulsive and difficult to handle, or they may be disorganized and living in a state of chaos, which makes it very hard for them to operate in the medical model that we expect them to operate in, right? So right. if you are going through cycles of intoxication and withdrawal and your finances are not in order or far from it, your relationships are falling apart, you have lost your job, your housing may be threatened. I mean, this is kind of the people who've really struggled a lot of negative consequences. And we tell them to come in two weeks at nine o'clock in the morning for an appointment. I mean, the likelihood of that happening is can be quite low, right? They have so much that's going to happen between now and then, and yet we expect them to put that in their calendar and show up. Now, I'm not being, I don't want to be condescending and, and not give people credit, but I think we expect people to operate in a model that we don't give them the chance to succeed in. However, on the flip side, I do think we need to have people be accountable for their behavior at a certain level. And that's where we find behavioral contracts very helpful. So when a patient agrees to come into treatment with you in your clinic, whatever your setting is, whether it's an emergency room or an OB, OB practice or labor and delivery, you know, acute hospitalization or a clinical practice like we have, family medicine, they are expected and they know they're going to sign some forms and those should include informed consent and HIPAA forms, et cetera, 42 CFR. But one of them, I think, um, which is kind of helpful and you should write it as it applies to your clinic is a behavioral contract. How you expect people to show up to your practice. What do you want them to show up in, in exchange for what you're willing to show up to do? And what's your policy for no-shows for late visits, for uh, calling and, and making um, kind of unreasonable requests? Um, what's the expectation for refills of medication without a visit? All these kinds of things. We've had to learn by experience all of these scenarios and write them down and have people sign it. Uh, does that mean people always adhere to it? Absolutely not. But at least we can refer back to it and gently and, and kindly say, hey, this is kind of how, this is how we operate here. We expect that you're going to be able to do these things in order to have treatment from us at this level of care. This is an outpatient level of care. That means that you don't get a lot of support, right? We're not doing daily treatment. We're not in a residential setting and go from there. When people absolutely can't seem to manage that contract other than being rude or threatening, that's another story. We have another model in our clinic where we just don't expect them to come to appointments on time. We just have a group model and they can come to a group visit that has a peer support person, harm reduction navigator, LCSW, and we see them in a group and they kind of have each other to talk about and they have a lot of psychosocial needs and we try and sort out their priorities in a group setting. That way, from a practice perspective, we don't lose revenue from them no-showing and from a patient perspective, they get a little bit more wraparound services. 
for behaviorally out of control people, Darlene, we really don't have a lot of tolerance. I mean, if people come in and, and they're clearly just having a bad time or they're impulsive and they lose their temper and then they are able to check themselves or they apologize and there's no harm done, really. We, of course, give people a chance to apologize and make it good and we talk about it. But if people are really threatening or inappropriate to the point where my staff feel unsafe or my providers feel unsafe, um, I say, we're going to need to have you managed in a setting where there's more support and security. And I refer them typically to a daily um, treatment program where there is uh, staff that can handle them like that. What about you? No, absolutely. I don't have the group visit setting, which is what I love that you have. No, I agree. There are there are times when I have to tell them this person clearly needs more support, like the daily visits. And there's times that that's appropriate. Being able to sometimes sit down and remaining calm and then discussing this behavior isn't appropriate. Having that upfront expectations that you talk about, those behavioral contracts, I love that so that the patient knows this is what we expect from you. This is what we can offer and being very clear. I think that's what's important, being very clear, giving, I give patients copies of everything. I give them copies of all of the, any treatment agreements that they complete or sign medication count policy. We give them all of that, that here, here is what our expectations are. So There's no surprises. This is not an I got you. We're not trying to do that. This is just, this is clear so that we're being upfront with you. The biggest thing is my staff need to feel safe. But I think most of the time those become less common when you have that upfront and very clear and setting those appropriate boundaries. Yeah, no, I love that you do that. I think it's such a good idea to give people copies and, you know, to sit down with people calmly, discuss what happened and what the expectation is, and then to follow through. One of the things I hear a lot, um, you're in, you're kind of the only person in your practice that, that provides addiction medicine services, but in our practice, we have multiple providers and who do this. But I hear really frequently from our medical assistants that there's inconsistencies between the way different providers respond to different patients. So for example, patient A will come in repeatedly late for his appointment, and the provider will still give him a prescription without the patient being seen, uh, say, oh, we'll just have him leave a urine and I'll just give him a prescription. Whereas all the other providers would, would not do that. And this, this creates discrepancy, you know, in the, in the practice or some patients will call and say, well, so-and-so will give me a prescription for three weeks and -and so-and-so, but another provider only feels comfortable doing it for one week. So I think it goes both ways. I think obviously providers have the autonomy to practice how they want to practice, but if you're in a group setting, you not only want to provide these kinds of boundaries and guidelines and documents for the patient's perspective, but also for all of the staff, because then you have a unified front and it kind of protects you too. We did some consulting in um, Southeast Utah. It was fantastic. And they were having some struggles in one of the health systems with changing from, I'd say, quite a permissive controlled substance um, environment to a more monitored environment. 
And some of the providers, which is very typical for a rural setting, they have noted that one of the doctors who I really respected, an excellent physician who's been there, he's like, I have taken care of these people's grandparents. I have seen generations in this community and I'm respected. And I, I, I really worry that if I come in and change everything and say, well, now you can only have this much of your hydrocodone. Now I'm going to taper you. Now I'm going to require urine drug screen. Now I'm going to be doing this. It's going to be very hard for me to do that on a personal level and on a community level. But once we made the changes or encouraged the, the whole health organization to make the change and the policy change, that provider was able to stand next to the organization and say, this is an organizational change. Now, did the providers care? <laughs> Excuse me, did the patients care about organizational changes? No. But I think it buoys up the providers. It gives yes. them confidence. So I think if you are in a practice where you're more in an administrative role or you have decisions, most of us in our practices have some, hopefully have a voice it's really important to have a unified front when it comes to what do we do with a disruptive patient? What do we do with people who continually are positive for high, you know, high amounts of alcohol and we're giving them buprenorphine? What do we do with patients who fill high doses of benzos from other providers? We need to have these kinds of discussions so that we can present as a unified front. And it's helpful for the patients too. You said this already, but I really think patients come to a practice and they already know what to expect. They know because patients with substance use disorder, typically, not always, and I'm generalizing, but they talk to each other and they'll say, oh, doctor, Dr. Peterson, you better watch out for her because she's going to do pill counts and she's going to urine drug screen you every time. And so don't go to her if you're going to want to split your dose and give half to your your partner. You know, they, they just know these kinds of things. And I have them tell me, well, I can just go get, I can go get whatever I want from Dr. So-and-so. I can go do it right now. I can call and make an appointment and I can get whatever meds I want. And I'm like, I'm sure you can. They know it. So you get to decide what kind of a practice you want to be. And you can always change your mind. If it's not working, you can change your mind and you can rewrite and discuss with your patients and, and kind of go from there. You bring up excellent point. It, it takes a little bit of time, but honestly, you just get those, get those policies and procedures written down and that's what you go off of. If you haven't, if you haven't done that in a while, do it. It makes life so much easier. You just have everybody just adheres to that and you can come up with that decision, but it's so much easier when you have to make that change in your clinic. If you're just like, this is just our clinic policy. I, I know that's sometimes hard, but if you're like, this is just our clinic policy, this is how we do things here. Then yes, our patients always necessarily going to be happy. But if it's like, this is the policy, then that's what you do. And if everybody adheres to it, it makes it right. a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier. Like we do, we do not co-prescribe, we do not co-prescribe benzodiazepines. In fact, we don't prescribe benzodiazepines at all at our clinic. So we kind of have the luxury of doing that uh, just because we treat all of our, all of our patients have an SUD diagnosis. Yeah. So we just, that's just what we get to say, like, sorry, we just don't do it. You know, if you feel like it's going to be life or death for you, you better find somewhere else to get your care. But in the meantime, we'll do everything else we can to support you. So last things, just I know we touched on this, but reducing diversion, I know that's a common concern, but continuing, obviously, medication counts, we've discussed that over and over, but 
shorter prescriptions if you suspect that urine drug screens. Paula, you've done this in your in your previous practice, but having patients bring back their empty wrappers. So this is on the you know buprenorphine, naloxone. So when we say buprenorphine, we're always speaking about buprenorphine, naloxone. Neither one of us prescribe the mono product that comes in the films and they're individually wrapped. Having patients all bring in their empty wrappers that is another option too as well. So that's something you can do in addition to all those things. And you've done that and that's worked for you when you've had kind of, you said a cohort that you kind of had some yes. concerns with. Yeah. Any other things that you do with reducing diversion? Uh, no. Well, I think, I think we've talked about all of them. I think having uh, an ROI, having a release to talk to family can be very helpful. Yeah. Um, I know you do that. You're the one who taught me about that. Um, so that you can always reach out and say, hey, how, how's this person doing? Are they any concerns about how they take their medication? Any concerns about how they act surrounding their medication um, can be really helpful. And, um, and then, of course, all the objective things that you've already discussed uh, are very helpful. And if you need concrete tools to create policies and procedures and to guide yourselves on on how to do these things i really we both recommend the tip 63 from samsa yes. it has everything in there that you would need in terms of sample forms policies behavioral contracts informed consent urine drug screening everything you need to know and then also you can all, uh, request technical assistance from a live human through the opioid response network grant which is free and accessible again through a grant from SAMHSA. You just put a request in on their on their website, and you can be paired with someone who has some experience with addiction medicine, and they can help you or your practice um, develop best practices surrounding maintenance treatment for OUD um, and prevention of diversion monitoring. All these kinds of topics, especially if you're in an area where you're re- meeting some resistance about treating quotation mark these patients like oh we don't want to do that we don't want to treat these patients well yes if you're up against this kind of um you know logic in your community then going and having some extra support can be really helpful absolutely as my response always to that is they're already in your practice it's just a matter of how you're treating them you can treat them appropriately by providing them good evidence-based quality care or you can continue doing what you're doing, which doesn't seem to be working for you. Right, Paula? So let's do it differently. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I think we've covered it. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com.
are for entertainment and education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.